The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we again want to express our, our thanks to you. It's part of our expression of worship is to affirm your kindness and uh, allowing us to, to assemble, to, to sing, to worship, to fellowship. And that's all centered on the fact that uh, there was um, the, ex- the extending of not just a kindness, but of uh, a profound and unfathomable love toward those who would submit in faith and repentance. The sending of your son as was mentioned this morning. And so we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you for the, the work that you have done and the sure work that you will continue to do. We thank you for um, the testimony that you will return, even as we've sung this morning, and we long for that day. We, we want to um, be found ready. We want to find those who are around us ready, but we long for that day. And we do ask, Lord, would you come quickly? Um, the contemporary circumstances, they always seem to be pressing, and every generation, by design, um, longs for and expects your coming. And so we thank you that you've... Uh, woven that into the identity of the church, that we are an expectant people. We are a people that are actively hopeful and actively looking. Help that to, to be a transformative hope, even as John expresses in First John there, that it, it does accomplish a unique work within us. It's a transformative work. And Lord, we thank you for, again, just the opportunity to assemble. Here we have the, the scriptures before us and we have the testimony of um, the psalmist here who is exhorting us and calling upon us to, to find our chief delight and satisfaction in your word. Um, it's there that we'll find success and prosperity and success and prosperity that supersedes the temporal and uh, the, even some of the vain things that we're interested in or short, short-sighted things. It exceeds well beyond that. It gives us satisfaction of soul and hope and joy, purpose and clarity. And so we, we want to have that kind of appetite for your word. We want it to work in us. We want it to, to be what marks our lives, fills our lives, fills our mind and attention, even the, the muttering of our lips. May it be seasoned with your word. And so to that end, Lord, we ask that you would help us as we engage the scriptures. Um, many people are, um, in, a, in a scholastic sense, they're, they're experts at the scriptures, and yet outside of the Spirit of God being our teacher, we're not going to truly know you or truly know your word. We're not going to benefit or be transformed. And so we do thank you for those who are in Christ, that we have the spirit of God dwelling within us. And we ask even now that uh, while we exercise um, gifting and labor in terms of teaching, that you would be um, the one who teaches us most clearly, that you would open your word and help us to, to receive that which you've plainly provided for us. And then for the grace to do what you've made plain. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you know, we've been working through the book of 2 Peter since the end of July. Well, I say as you know, you might not have realized it's been since July. Since the end of July, we've been in 2 Peter. And we anticipated finishing the book any moment now. I, I have a, a measure of guilt. Not It doesn't really burden me to the point of actually producing action. But I do feel a little bit bad that occasionally I've talked to, to Frank and Matt and said, well, you know, I'm going to finish about this time and then this time passes, um, but Denise is familiar with that at home. So um, these things take time sometimes, and uh, we're walking through it. And if you walked in my, my study down the hall here in prior weeks, you might have noticed an outline of the book taped next to my computer. And that wasn't to, it was just to give me some guidance in terms of, okay, this is the structure of the book. This is where I anticipate being. And I've learned over the years to, to pencil in the dates. And so then you erase and you redo and you have to recalibrate in terms of where you're in the book. Um, but such is the nature of things. Things change. Sometimes we cover a section more quickly. Sometimes we break it up into smaller parts. Sometimes we pause for a special message or to accommodate travel or similar breaks. And for a few weeks, we've not been in Second Peter. Um, as we took two weeks in the book of Isaiah with Pastor Matt, as we worked through some well-known and beloved passages in association to the Christmas season, also, in these last few weeks, I took the opportunity to teach from Psalm 150 in Sunday school. That was a kind of a special treat to, to be able to, to look at Psalm 150 uh, together in this, this Sunday school context, finishing the year with the last of the, the Hallelujah Psalms that we'd been working through in prayer meeting. And then last week, I chose to preach from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. And 
I share all this not to defend or extending the conclusion of our work in Second Peter. And that, that is a side advantage to that, maybe, that, boy, we're still in Second Peter, it's such a short letter. Or even really to catch everyone went up. There's an advantage to that as well. But the purpose of sharing that is to draw something to your attention regarding our work in Psalm 1 today. That it was intentionally placed here, and by here I meant last week originally, the first Sunday of the year, but in God's providence, it will be today, which is even better, even better. Let me briefly explain what I mean. So we finished the year with, again, Psalm 150, the conclusion not only of the Hallelujah Psalms, but of the Psalter as a whole. And sometimes there are things about conclusions that can better help us appreciate its earliest foundations, a matter we'll return to in a little while. We've also now engaged a well-known but precious text from John chapter 3, which will aid us in bridging the Psalm 1 man to us. So we're going to talk about the Psalm 1 man, but in what ways can we mimic and and learn from him and to value the Psalm 1 man, not as an ideal person, but a born-again person. Again, a matter we'll return to later. But there was also the more plain reason that I wanted to teach this passage today. It's because it's a foundation for the Psalms. And it's a beloved psalm. It's one of my favorites. One of my favorite portions of the whole of the scriptures. But it's a foundation for the psalms and can prove to be a foundation for our year as well. And so, again, not to be um, uh, like, well, we're going to put this here in the calendar. But I do think there's an advantage. We're going to look at a foundation as we begin a new year. And I think there's a, an advantage to that. So my hope is that it will set a tone for us personally and corporately as is also set the tone of the Psalter. And regarding this... Namely, Psalm 1's unique impact on the Psalms as a whole, Charles Spurgeon stated stated the following. He stated, This psalm may be regarded as the preface psalm, having in it a notification of the contents of the entire book. Now, that might sound quite generous. You know, Spurgeon was very gifted in his words, and it might be like, oh, he... But I would want him to give my eulogy because he would probably just be very generous and very uh, skilled in his words. Maybe that's what he's doing with Psalm 1. Maybe it's just a, a generous approach to the opening of the Psalms and the opening of his three-volume works in the Psalms of David's. Uh, but it's not exaggerated um, to, to say that this Psalm that is a reflection and a forecasting of what would be in the entire Psalter. The entire Psalter, which includes a broad range of prayers, theology, songs, worship, even struggle. But I think there's something for this conclusion. I think there's a reason for saying such a a generous and uh, seemingly maybe overly generous statement given the breadth of the Psalms. I think he's right with this. So let's walk through this for a moment. This Psalm speaks of the blessed man, right? Who is righteous and wholly delights himself in God's word. He's also prosperous, prepared for judgment, and his path is intimately known by Yahweh. So while it might not speak of all matters, it does speak to them. So it might not speak of all of them, but it does speak to them and presses us to grapple with what it means to be blessed and to have one's way known before the Lord in the complexities of this life and in the range of our worship and walk before him. I also think it's quite telling that Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. You might think, well, of course it's Psalm 1. What else would it be? What I mean by that is its placement later in the book would have secured it another number or identity. Because unlike many other books whose compositions are determined by historical narrative, flow of a letter, or even a thematic development, the Psalter consists of 150 psalms written over approximately 900 years and included noted authors such as Moses and David and and many others before it was compiled by someone. Uh, I think there's a good case for Ezra maybe being the the final editor or compiler of the psalms. And whoever it was, I would argue that by the nature of the scriptures, they were even inspired in their ordering of their choices. And I think that impacts how you read and understand the Psalms. Now, there are identifiable traits within the five books of the Psalms. I'm not dismissing that in terms of uh, the ordering, but there's a clear intentionality to placing this Psalm first. I think there's a reason for that. And I would argue that no small reason for this was that it serves as a foundation of the Psalter as a whole. Just as we saw that Psalm 150 served as a, a unique role, it wouldn't, you, couldn't, you wouldn't have that great doxological praise at Psalm 4. It really fits at Psalm 150. The closing of the doxology and the, with the, the final doxology of the Hallelujah Psalms of Book 5 and the Psalter as a whole, it fits there. It, it was a wise and shrewd and I think inspired decision. Put it there. And you think about, well... Maybe it was who wrote it. Well, 
we know that Moses wrote at least one Psalm and that's, that's way in the Psalter. I think it's like Psalm 90. And so we're mindful there was a reason for it being placed where it was. So once more, while Psalm 1 does not exhaustively or even generically speak of the full range of the truths expressed in the whole of the Psalter, it does speak to them and by way of providing them a foundation. And as I stated, it uh, does this when it speaks of the blessed man who is righteous and wholly delights himself in God's word, who's also prosperous, prepared for judgment, whose path is intimately known by Yahweh. That is the model we'd be wise to follow and to pattern not only our new year by it, but really our, the whole of our lives. So let me frame these things in five statements that we can broadly observe as we walk through Psalm 1 today. They will not necessarily frame my breakdown of the passage, but they will inform the spirit of our engagement and provide for us something we can take away. We can have these five things and remember, have a really good working concept of Psalm 1. So it can keep before us as we walk, hopefully in a like manner as the Psalm 1 man. So the first we have is the Lord's people are righteous from verse 1. The Lord's people are delight in his word, verse 2. The Lord's people renew their mind with his word, verse 2. The Lord's people know an enduring prosperity, verse 3. The Lord's people walk in his principles, precepts, and commands, from verse 6. So again, righteous, delighting in God's word, renewing the mind, enduring prosperity, walking in God's principles, precepts, and commands. These are all things that uh, for us to have in mind, during this engagement with Psalm 1, and again, as we head our separate ways today, I think if you get that, you have a really good idea of the Psalm 1 man, the Psalm 1 woman by extension, and I think it would help us as we walk through our daily lives. And I would also affirm once more that we plainly see in these things a robust foundation that has within it a broad range of prayers, theology, songs, worship, and even struggle. You have this foundation, you can understand those other things, and they can be developed and further developed. And again, a magnificent foundational charge for our going into a, a new year together. So with these things in mind, let's once more read Psalm 1 together as we work through a simple but uh, magnificent text. The psalm reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, one of the first things I'd like to do, um, and you know this from, especially if you're here on Wednesday nights and you're walking through the Psalms with me, but we do this kind of behind the scenes with larger books as well. But when we're working through a Psalm or a book to outline its structure, to outline its structure, and as simple as these six verses are, there are numerous outlines and structural conclusions that various teachers and commentators have produced, including myself. I have an outline that I came up with the first time that I gave Psalm 1 some serious attention and study, and now I have two different ones. Now, the first one I'll provide for you is not especially helpful as an outline. So you might think you're going to give me an outline that's not especially helpful as an outline. It's true, but there's a process to this. It was more of a, a working engagement with the Psalm, but it drew something out that I think is worthy of our attention. The second outline is extremely simplistic, but I think expresses the structure and what it's communicating. So we can first plainly observe that Psalm 1 has at the least two primary sections, right? We even mentioned this when we were praying, the, the way of the wicked, the way of, or excuse me, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There's, there's two clear paths, way and path being used interchangeably. The first section, again, speaks to the nature of the righteous or the blessed man. The second section speaks to the nature of the wicked or perishing man. But when wrestling through the, the relationship of these various elements of the psalm, I was seeing points of uh, consistency and parallel between the two sections that I couldn't just I couldn't quite fit them together. I was seeing mirroring things and similar concepts. So in that effort, I sketched out my observation of the two sections and came up with the following conclusion. Part one, verses uh, one through three, I divided into five sections that I labeled A through E. 
And for those who are maybe listening, uh, maybe not this morning, but are listening at another time, seeing the screen does have an advantage, but it will be clear enough. And if those of you even sitting here and looking at the screen, it will be clear enough. Just let's walk together. So first we have A, the blessed righteous man. That's in verse one. B, disassociation with the wicked and unrighteous. Also verse one. C, the source of the righteous man's blessing. Verse two. D, the image or expression of the blessed man, the righteous man, verse 3. And then E, the fruit or expression of the blessed way, verse 3. So again, A, B, C, D, E, you see a clear pattern, clear parts. That's very plain, simple, plain enough. But when I tried to match this up with the second part as either a mirror reflection, a, a duplication of patterns or otherwise, I could not make it work. But noting a measure of contrasting continuity, I worked with my letter scheme and still came up with the following five-part breakup of the second half of the psalm. But you'll note that it's not clean A through E pattern anymore. And again, this doesn't really make for a good outline, but it gets us somewhere that I think is helpful. So I do use the same letters to indicate parallel ideas. So A will correspond with A and so forth. Um, with the first half, but they obviously don't express any clear pattern in relationship to the first half in terms of ordering. So this time where it was A through E in part one, now we have A, D, B, B, E. So follow with me. A, the wicked, unrighteous man, verse four. D, the image or expression of the wicked, unrighteous man, verse four. B, disassociation with the blessed and righteous man, verse five. B, disassociation from Yahweh and his blessing, verse 6, and then E, the fruit or expression of the wicked way. Now, not only do we have a jumbling of the order and duplication of one of the sections, we also have a letter or element of the psalm that's wholly missing in the second half, and it's a critical absence. It was the section reflected by the letter C, which was the section that expressed the source of the righteous man's blessing in verse 2. And I would go on to state not only is the the source of his blessing, but a critical expression of his identity, namely, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, why make such a big deal of a very raw and arguably a failed attempt to identify structural patterns of the psalm? Because while I labored in this psalm that I've known quite well for a long time, I couldn't escape the absolutely critical nature of this element. As you'll see in the final outlining of my psalm, it's, it's there, but it's not highlighted in a unique way. And for all my investigating of other sources, I don't recall anyone drawing out this critical element in the structuring of the psalm, namely his delights in the law of Yahweh and his law, he meditates day and night. It didn't get singular focused attention. Not because it's unimportant, but I would argue because it's so absolutely important that to say a man is righteous and blessed by Yahweh is to implicitly communicate that he is a man who delights in the law of Yahweh, and that delight is all-consuming for him. Therefore, if you remove this element, you don't have a righteous man blessed by Yahweh. What you have is a wicked man who does not rise in the judgment, will not enjoy the company of the righteous, and who will perish. So I think structurally, the impl- implicitly, is very clear that it is highlighting this element. The fact that it's absent creates the wicked man. The fact that it's present creates the righteous man, the blessed man. So even while it's serving as a a portion of the larger picture of the righteous and blessed man, it's identifying who he is. And so what I was concerned about is in all of our outlining efforts, we can just say this is the way of the righteous. And we might miss that key ingredient that it's the way of the righteous because he delights in the law of Yahweh and in his law he meditates day and night. It's implicitly there. So that little jumbled up outline drew out what was already there, but maybe we're not going to necessarily observe. It's kind of assimilated and, and formed the fuller identity. So that's why I think it was profitable. Therefore, while simple, I now would argue that a better outlining, uh, the, the book can be broken up into three parts, not the five and the five, but just three simple parts. So let's look at those now. The way of the righteous, verses 1 through 3. The way of the wicked, verses 4 to 5. And then finally, Yahweh's evaluation of the contrasting ways, verse 6. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, and then Yahweh's evaluation. So we have two paths that are expressed in this foundational psalm. The way or the path of the righteous and the way or the path of the wicked. 
And as we've established, the key distinction in these two paths is what? It's the word of God. So one path, the path of the righteous and blessed man, is cut by the word of God. The other path, the path of the wicked, is cut by carnal lust of men. The one leading to joy in God and the other to perishing. Now, with this in view, let's walk through Psalm 1 together. So first we note that the psalm begins with a beatitude. And maybe you're thinking, well, the Beatitudes, that's, that's, that's a gospel thing. That's a New Testament thing. Well, the Beatitudes are broader categorically. So that which expresses a, a condition of great blessing. So we're familiar with this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus opens that time of teaching with in the Gospel of Matthew, we have nine Beatitudes. Here we have one. And whereas the nine that Jesus uses in his message are, are precise, blessed are the meek, blessed are the righteous, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when people persecute you and insult you for my name's sake. You have very precise groups. This one's intentionally broad and sweeping. Sweep uh, it speaks to the man who is blessed by God or f- happy, fully satisfied, not lacking or wanting. And I want you to think about those descriptions of the blessed man for a moment. Again, the, the one who is um, blessed by God, happy, fully satisfied, not lacking or wanting. So think about that. That's the condition of the righteous. But how often, how often do these same descriptive terms get manipulated to to justify carnal conduct? And you hear this, and you'll hear it when we speak of it here, persons who do not want to say that, they they won't come out and say, well, I have an insatiable, insatiable appetite for my sin, or that, you know what, I'm a slave to sin, therefore I will sin. Instead, they just manipulate these terms, these terms of blessing, and they would state things like, I just want to be happy. I want to be satisfied. I don't want to be lacking. They're using the terms of the blessed man. That's not the nature of the blessed man. It's in radical contrast to the nature of the blessed man, which is exactly what the psalmist lays out for us here. So you have the the prohibition, as it were, that he begins with. He begins with these descriptions of the blessed man with a negative contrast of his conduct, character, and ways. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, there's a plain digression of conduct being expressed here to, to provide us an antithesis to the patterns of righteous conduct expected of the blessed man. This digression is pictured by the association of walking in the company of someone, then standing amongst them, and finally settling down to sit. Each of these, uh, each step of the way being expressed is accompanied by an unrighteous character, the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. Now, while I'm persu- persuaded that the range of the identities used here are for broad contrasting of the blessed or righteous man to those who have chosen another path, I also recognize that each term is communicating something worthy of our attention. So as to express these differences, I'll use the definitions provided by two German commentators, uh, K and D. I have the names up there in a moment. There's been no small dispute in terms of how they're pronounced, so not going to fight that one. But in their well-established commentary in the Psalms, you have the parsing of similar terms, which is helpful because, again, these are very similar terms. You have the way the wicked, you have the, um, the, the sinners, and you have the scoffers. So parsing those terms apart a little bit will help us kind of see the fuller picture. And so they, they've stated it as follows. The wicked the, are the godless whose moral condition is lax. So again, the wicked are those whose moral condition is lax. Sinners pass their lives in sin, especially coarse and manifest sin. So again, they're they're noted, their identity is that of sin. And then the scoffer, who we should be familiar with from 2 Peter 3, makes uh, makes what is divine, holy, and true a subject of frivolous jesting. So they're making little of that which is much. Now, with these characters in mind, consider the nature of their company and the pattern of digression expressed, and you have the path of the godless, the hopeless, the perishing. Those who have submitted their mind to the instruction, the persuasion, and ideas of those whose character is morally lax. You think about that. They, they've submitted their minds and instruction, the input, the, the things they're taking, to, they're, they're dwelling on, and maybe what they're watching and listening to, the information they're taking in is from those whose character is morally lax. That's not what the righteous man does. And from the submission of the mind, there's the diminishing of conduct, actions that are increasingly mimicking those whose lives are marked by sin. So you have the, 
the persuasion and the input of information leading to the digression of conduct, and ultimately this leads to the perverting of that which is beautiful and true, the debased by foolish words and actions. And we've seen that pattern, haven't you? You've walked long enough, you've seen it. People influenced by ideas, and then their conduct follows, and then they mock and belittle that which is precious. Maybe that which was expressed to be precious by them, but now, oh, that's just so archaic or repressive. That's mocking. So for many of us, again, this pattern sounds all too familiar because no small measure, with no small measure of grief, again, we've, we've seen this pattern. And with those maybe we've walked with and we've observed that, you know, they, they appeared to be in Christ, at least at some point in time, by all appearances that it looked like they were, but then the information they took didn't transform the, the conduct. And then finally, they've digressed to the point of making little or even mocking that which is glorious and precious to us. And that's a grievous path to perishing. And that's where it leads, to perishing. It's not the path of the blessed man. The blessed man does not tread this path. Rather, his path is the very antithesis to the perverse and dissatisfying way of the wicked. It's a path that in a way mirrors the actions of the wicked, but with a proper focus and execution as the blessed man's thoughts and actions are transformed first by the word of God. By the word of God will inform his actions and it will produce not mocking, but you're going to conclude with something like a Psalm 150 disposition of doxological praise to God, right? The very antithesis to mocking. So with, when the righteous man submits himself to God's word with both effort and time, again, you're increasingly immersed in these truths. They're infecting your uh, mind. They're transforming your conduct, resulting in worshipful praise and, and words pleasing to God. Versus those who, again, the wicked culminating in and, and the, the, the mocking and the, the derision of that which is precious. Now, regarding some of these parallel ideas and their expression, Willem van Gimmeren, he saw a parallel-like expression of this path of the righteous also, but he saw it in Deuteronomy 6, specifically in the commands given to Israel and their relationship to Yahweh's law. Deuteronomy 6, verse 7 he sees similar language, similar ideas. I'm not going to say it's a transferable principle or that that's exactly what the psalmist had in mind, but I do think there's something to be said for, wow, this is a good pattern, isn't it? The, the prohibition provides us also a proactive pattern. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, you read, You shall teach Yahweh's law diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. So you see some of that similar language and similar pattern. It's a language of saturation, saturation of the mind, saturation of the life and context. So it does, again, employ like language that captures that comprehensive engagement of God's people to his word, an engagement that's not a burden, but rather a delight to the righteous whose days and nights are marked by their meditation upon God's law. And with this in view, we come to the other side of the blessed man's path. The first side was one of abstaining. And there is a place to, to view abstaining and keeping from things, specifically abstaining from lesser and wicked things. And this is the second side. It's that of delighting. Delighting in or finding one's fullest and greatest satisfaction in God and to, to point here, God's law. Now, we're reading this as those who are in Christ's church. That's our historical context. That's where we are in terms of God's redemptive plan unfolding and not as those who have the same relationship with the law of Yahweh as Israel would have had in this first and immediate context. So I think in view of that, two things are helpful to keep in mind. First, it's not an artificial stretch or misuse of the passage's message to expand the principles of application to the whole of the scriptures. We would say when we see things like, oh, how I love your law, I think it's very applicable to say how oh, I love your word, the totality of the scriptures and what they require, what they reveal of us. I think when we see he meditates upon God's law day and night, we don't say, well, we're going to get that tore down. We're going to master it. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. That's an excellent idea. Get that foundation, that cornerstone of the Old Testament that's going to obviously give you your understanding of the New Testament. Master that. But love the whole of the scriptures as well that we've been generously provided. But second, we need to be careful in our broadening of application to not devalue the proper esteeming of Yahweh's law. We don't need to be like, well, that was them and now this is us. There was a preciousness to God's law. So we need to keep those two things in mind. We have a broader application, but also an esteeming of Yahweh's law. 
And we know that Yahweh's law from the testimony of the scriptures is it was good. It was good, but that its full keeping and satisfaction required something of Israel that they would not have until the full application of the new covenant, namely transformed hearts and the indwelling spirit of God. So with these two things in mind, I'd like to take some time to establish a tone of appreciation for the law of Yahweh and show that it would be most natural for the righteous man to truly find his delight in it, a consuming and satisfying delight. So to this end, we first need to understand that Yahweh's principles, precepts, and commands were provided in order to, to order the life, the practice, and worship of Israel. It was God's good design for them. By its very nature, its obedience would bring life and blessing. Its disobedience, death, and judgment. The law also revealed much of Yahweh's character and ways. So let's walk through a range of passages together, watching as these truths are expressed and developed, that to, to, to secure in us an appreciation and even an affection for Yahweh's law. So first, we go back to Exodus 13. We observe what should have been the relationship of Israel to God's law, one of such an intimate nature, it was as though it were bound to their hands and head and ever present in their mouth. Expressions to, to communicate the intimate proximity and fluidity of presence to their thoughts and words. The word of God was what consumed and marked them. Not necessarily a physical expression, as most and most certainly not a physical expression at the expense of spiritual application. You can literally bind God's word on you, and you can wear it on a shirt, and you can have it on your vehicle, but there has to be a point of continuity there in terms of it's marked and saturated the life. And so again, in Exodus 13, 9, we read in accordance to these things, and it will be a sign to you on your hand and, on, and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. Next, in Deuteronomy 17, we observe the guidance provided for the ordering of Israel's kings, including his relationship to Yahweh's law, which was to be an ever-guiding element of his life and ruling. To this end, he was commanded to write out his own copy of the law, read it all the days of his life so that he would fear Yahweh and faithfully keep all of his commandments, and in this, in doing these things, enjoy God's blessings for himself and those whom he would lead. So Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 to 20, now it will be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law, of Yahweh's law, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to carefully, carefully observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up against, above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his sons in the midst of Israel. And then Deuteronomy 27 to 28, we're not going to read all of that, but just to highlight it was laid out quite explicitly that Yahweh's law was to be obeyed and submitted to, conduct that would in turn secure the Lord's blessing. However, if Israel did not obey and submit to the law of Yahweh, there would be profound and severe cursing, a perishing of the individual and a perishing of the nation. And then we continue on though, in Deuteronomy 32 verses 46 to 47, we see later Moses provided a final charge as it were to Israel to keep God's law. He says, place in your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to be careful to do, even all the words of this law. For it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. And in view of that, I would especially let this one sentence of nothing else burn into your thoughts and stay with you when he states, it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And such is the character and nature of the word of God for us. And now we come to Joshua 1. And because this passage arguably provides the best working expression of what we're walking through in Psalm 1, I want to give it a little extra attention. So here we read in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. Only be strong and very courageous to be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be prosperous wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then, or excuse me, then you will make your way successful, and then you will be prosperous. 
So this charge came to Joshua as he was now leading the nation of Israel in place of Moses, and they would now engage in a comprehensive and sustained conflict to secure their promised land. Israel is not simple, and, and we need to understand, we need to remember that Israel is not simply a people looking for a land, but were the covenant people of God who were securing that which God had promised them, while also being a tool of righteous judgment upon a wicked and unrepentant people. Further, Israel was a people who were to be holy, set apart, as witness bearers of Yahweh. They weren't just a peculiar people that were set apart so they could have their land and do things the way they did them. They were a people set apart to be witness bearers of Yahweh. They were to declare and exemplify his excellencies to other people. They were a witness-bearing nation. To that end, they were to be governed by God's righteous truths and laws that had been supernaturally revealed and codified for them in the law of Yahweh, a law that informed their understanding in relationship to God and to one another. So Joshua, following the, the powerful and utterly unique leadership of Moses and himself, and again, the precipice of a sustained conflict against multiple peoples, would have good reason to benefit from a command to be strong and courageous. However, this was not some divine pep talk to get him charged up and ready for leading others into battle, but a command to be confident in Yahweh and have himself centered on Yahweh's word, the law of Yahweh. I think there we can see, if nowhere else, how naturally applicable this is to the variety of life and circumstances. This was not a charge to a Levitical priest to master the law so that you can teach others. This was master the law and have it consume you because you're going to go do some very normal daily things. Well, I guess conquering a nation is not really normal daily things. If you're a general leading God's people. But the very natural parts of life. So Joshua's commanded, expected to do all or everything that is in the law of God. And to do that, he had to master it, had to be consumed by it. There was no wavering or compromising in his practice of full obedience. Not turning to the right, not turning to the left. And what would be the fruit of that? For a military general leading God's people, the fruit of the returns of this full and unwavering submission to God's word is that he would be prosperous wherever he went. He would enjoy the blessings and joy of God. Not a life without struggle. I think if we confuse blessing with a lack of struggle, Josh was an easy one to look at. He had to still engage in combat, and he still had some highs and lows in that process. So it's not a life without struggle or challenges, but one of God's good favor and joy. Joshua was told that God's law was not to depart, to leave, to not depart or to leave his mouth. It was to be an ever-present companion, always filling his mind and therefore always gracing his speech, even speech that had only the audience of himself at times. It was to be a self-recited and spoken in the constant discipline of reminding himself, teaching himself, correcting himself with truth. Well, how do you do that? You do that by knowing and meditating upon the scriptures. And now, Take a peek back to Psalm 1 for a moment. We can see the closeness of the historical charge of Joshua with the description of the righteous and blessed man. Just as there was to be a comprehensive obedience and submission to the law of God, being careful to do all that was commanded in it, not turning to the right or to the left, so also the comprehensive nature of the call to meditate upon it day and night or at all times, such as we see in Psalm 1. Also, just as there were fruit or returns for full and unwavering submission to God's word, so also are the fruit and returns for this life pattern of meditating upon it too, enjoying success and pr prosperity. Again, not success and prosperity in some carnal and short-sighted manner, but in ways reflecting a walk in life in accordance to God's good pleasure and the design that he's provided for his people, a truer success, a truer prosperity. And while the words of this charge of being strong and courageous centered itself and its success and blessing on Joshua's relationship to the law of God, so also was the experience for all of Israel. They were expected to center themselves in the law of Yahweh, who by design, they were to have the law of Yahweh as a central and consuming element of their lives, individually and corporately. And to just to, to pause for a moment, are you seeing some clear parallels of application now for us? This was to consume their leadership, to saturate his life, and every one of the persons, individually and as a corporate unit, to know, to love, to meditate, to dwell upon, to be governed by the law of Yahweh. You see how we're ordering ourselves as well? We're people of the book. Well, that means something. It should mean something. 
So we're going to look for a few more passages, um, but one more from Joshua, this one at the conclusion of his life, a life that finished well and enjoyed God's blessing and the prosperity that accompanied it. And with this, we'll observe that among his final charges to the people, he included a call of uh, full submission to the law, not turning from it to the right or to the left. So again, familiar language, and to what end? That the people would, would disassociate from the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. There has to be that prohibition as well. There has to be the disassociation. And that's not out of pride or fear, but so they would not succumb to their idolatrous ways. And so they would continue to cling to Yahweh, their God, who fought for them and to whom they were to faithfully love. So again, holding fast to the law was not a, pro, was not a proud formality to create wedges or disdain between peoples, but a means of promoting and preserving holiness, integrity and in worship, and a righteous affection for the Lord. So we see all these things in Joshua 23, 6 to 11. Be, be very strong then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or the left. See, such as was leadership, such as the people are. Don't waver. Stay fast to the law of Moses, to the, to the law of Yahweh, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you will not go along with these nations these which remain among you, and you will not mention the name of their gods, and you will not make anyone swear by them, and you will not serve them, and you will not bow down to them. So again, that prohibition wasn't just so that we can be the other people or the exclusive people. It was to preserve, to preserve the integrity of holiness and worship. But you are to cling to Yahweh your God as you have done to this day. For Yahweh has dispossessed great and mighty nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men will pursue 1,000, for Yahweh your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So keep your souls very carefully to love Yahweh your God. And just as I highlighted from Deuteronomy 32, I would especially let some of these sentences kind of just burn into your memory and, and to your thoughts, the charge that Joshua gave. But you are to cling to Yahweh your God as you have done to this day. And then so keep your souls very carefully to love Yahweh your God. I think those, that language is a governing language that can direct and will keep us, will keep us, will grow us, will give us the grace to walk through this life well, and even enjoy God's range of blessings. But we are familiar with Israel's story, right? They didn't just conquer the land and become a, a wholly peculiar people that testified to, the, to Yahweh's excellencies in ways that were just outstanding and that drew people to Yahweh. Rather, they were a people that who didn't fully, and at times not at all, kept Yahweh's law. Sometimes they failed to delight in it. Often they failed to delight in it, failing to meditate upon it day and night, and therefore failing to know its blessings as well. In this they walked in the counsel of the wicked, they stood in the way of sinners and sat in the seat of scoffers, and in such were not counted among the righteous and could not stand in judgment. But we also remember those, those precious sparks of revival too, right? Remember, it wasn't just all, ah, uh, they're not getting it. Why aren't they getting it? What would they do better? There were sparks of revival, and among those most precious seasons came perhaps the most extraordinary one under the leadership of King Josiah. And what was the catalyst for his great revival? It was the discovery, the reading, and submission to the law of Yahweh. 2 Kings 22, 1-13, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, and walked in all the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now it happened in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought into the house of Yahweh, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them give it to the hand of those who do the work, who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh, and let them give it to those who do the work, who are in the house of Yahweh, to repair the damages of the house, to the craftsmen and the builders and the masons, and for buying timber and hewn stones to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money given to them into their hands, for they deal faithfully." Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, and here's where the story changes. Okay, go, go restore the temple. Go take care of this. You have resources. You have funds. And then something happens in that process. 
Uh, when I was moving, I found little treasures occasionally, like the Bible quiz book that we use on Wednesdays. Like, I don't know where it came from. I don't know why I have it. But it's a really nice little resource. So much more precious. The scribe comes and says, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. This isn't a game changer. This is an everything changer. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Okay, so found, read, transformation here. Then Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and responded to the king with a word and said, your servants have poured out the money that was found in the house and have given it into the hand of those who do the work, who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the high, excuse me, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. That's to put it lightly, isn't it? And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Now it happened that when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Hiakim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of Yahweh for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh which is set aflame against us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So we see the he understood there was a path, and the path of the righteous knows, delights in, and is consumed by the word of God or the law of Yahweh. He knew there's a path of the perishing. The path of the perishing have no regard for such things. And he says, our forefathers, they were on the path of perishing. We've got to be restored. And it was a returning to the scriptures, the law of Yahweh, the word of God that did that transformative work. Now, the two final passages I would like to highlight at this time in terms of kind of securing our appreciation and affection for the law of Yahweh, they're, uh, these two passages, they're centered on Ezra, his identity and his role in Nehemiah. So first, look at Nehemiah 8, 1 to 3. This is when the walls are being rebuilt, they're being dedicated, the people are recalibrating themselves in terms of, we're going to do this right, we're going we're gonna to walk in obedience, and we're going we're gonna to seek to be found faithful. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And why Ezra? Why Ezra? Why, why does he give this uh, special responsibility of the people being uh, working toward being restored and doing things right and building the temple and building the walls back and returning to the land? Why was Ezra the one that opened the scriptures for them and read it and, and provided some measure of, um, of teaching and clarity to the, to the scriptures? Well, the plainest answer might be on account of his role and position, but the better one is found, I would argue, in his strength, as was expressed in Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to practice it and to teach his statutes and judgment in Israel. Ezra was a man of the scriptures. And he, Moses, Joshua, Josiah, and countless other righteous people of God would gladly affirm the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 119 when they would declare, Oh, I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So here we have, why Ezra? Because he was the one that set his heart to study the law, to practice it, to put it to action in his own life, and then to declare it to others. He's one, again, that would declare, I have absolute confidence. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And I wanted to cultivate this appreciation of the law for you so as to press you to the same place as these men and the psalmist are, declaring with joyful satisfaction again that we would join their company because this is the spirit of what's being expressed in Psalm 1. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It's not a burdensome thing. It was a precious thing. The psalmist knew that in the law, he would know Yahweh. He would understand how to walk well. He would understand what Yahweh expects and how he would enjoy his blessings. So again, we have the path or the way of the blessed man is that he not only abstains from the way or the path of the wicked, but delights. He finds his greatest satisfaction in Yahweh's law just as we should delight in the whole 
of the scriptures. He also meditates upon it day and night, not unlike what Joshua was exhorted to do in his leading of God's people and implicitly what the kings would do in their own experiences of being governed by Yahweh's law. But what does it mean to meditate upon God's word? We've used that term a lot and have encouraged it and and hopefully we're walking and tracking with it, but what does that term mean? Well, the term to meditate frequently has a, a verbal dynamic to it. That of moaning or mummering or muttering, almost talking under one's breath. The idea is the the contents of God's truth have so consumed someone's mind and attention, it's it's a, it's it's spilling out under their lips to the person and in a recitation or pondering and just thinking about the law of Moses and think about it. And just that kind of not not that uh, what, they're talking to themselves. It's just it's spilling out. That kind of consuming of the mind, it gives, it's giving thorough and thoughtful attention to a matter, soaking it in and absorbing its fullness. It's not some cavalier, casual approach that, you know, I'm trying to read the Bible in a year, so it's, it's what was said. What are those words and connections and relationship? What am I drawing out of it? It's chewing on it slowly. And again, it has often a, a uh, the, the absorbing dynamic often has that audible component of muttering or moaning, an expression of the kind of the idea of, of softly chewing on words. Um, I know you've probably been around certain people, maybe at fellowship time we'll observe this, I don't know, but some people, they have something in their hand and they're about to consume it, and then it's gone. Their hand didn't move, their mouth didn't, it's gone. <laughs> we had a dog like that. I don't know what happened with the food, but it just, whoop, gone. That's not meditating. Meditating is taking a bite and chewing and chewing and just the, the digestion process is almost done because it's just obliterated. Get everything out of it you can get and then doing it again, doing it again. You have the idea of the picture of a, chow, uh, of a cow chewing cud, the, the multiple stomachs and however that works and the digestion process where it's, it's brought up and it's sent back. It's brought up and sent back. It's the stripping out every nutrient possible. It's not a fast process. It's a practice that occupies and consumes both day and night. It's a comprehensive immersion of the word of God in the whole of your life. It's a necessary saturation, and there's no means of effectually expediting this. Uh, you, you can't put this, you can't pressure cook this with, okay, it's, it's done in an hour versus three hours. No, this is, it has to be marinated. It has to take time. It has to season. And that's the nature of meditating, and that's the nature of what's expected here. It's not... He's exposed to God's word every day for a fraction of a moment. It's that he meditates upon it, chews on it, absorbs it, is transformed by it day and night. And while it is a labor, and that's not bad, we were made to work, it is work, but it's in labor of absolute delight. And when heated and exercised faithfully, it not only satisfies, but it produces prosperous fruit. Remember the exhortation of Joshua, do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left so that you may be prosperous wherever you go, and then you will make your way successful, then you will be prosperous. And so it is here too. And whatever he does, he prospers. But here I'd remind you of what we spoke of by way of introduction. The Psalm 1, uh, the Psalm 1, or Psalm 1 provides a foundation for the Psalter. So when we say whatever he does, he prospers, we have to wrestle with the blessed man prospering with the, 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 the range of experience and truth, truth that's expressed through the range of the Psalter, the, the righteous man struggles at times. He suffers. Sometimes you see David praying in such a way that he is just perplexed. And yet I would argue he was the blessed man. He was delighting himself in God's word. And so here we have the condition of blessing and prosperity, and we have to, to wrestle through and have to find satisfaction in the Lord and his truth as we live amidst the tensions of enduring truths and present experiences. They're not in conflict with one another, and sometimes it's not always as clear as we'd like for it to be, but there is prosperity and success. Therefore, we recognize that being prosperous often has a view to that which is exceeding the temporary. There clearly would be a contemporary uh, expression of it. There's joy, there is satisfaction, But it exceeds the temporary, and this is most certainly true for us who await a sure and eternal inheritance secured for us in Christ. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1. We have an inheritance of a nature that is secured and sure, gloriously so. And this is the path or the way of the blessed man. He abstains from wickedness and sin. 
and exercises his soul-satisfying delight and the giving of himself to the word of God. Such a man and such a woman would be described as one who is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and whatever they do, they prosper. What a magnificent image. I know a lot of places, some folks don't have many trees around. I remember uh, giving a classmate a ride home from Columbia, South Carolina, where we were college together to, to the Atlanta airport. And they were like, boy, I feel almost claustrophobic going down the interstate because trees, just wherever they were from, they didn't have as many trees. And we have such beautiful big trees. And we think about that. And what a great image of a tree secured and um, and, and, and the, the nature of a tree planted by shores of life-giving nourishment by which it will grow strong and fruitful. It's not some like little dinky withering tree. This is a magnificent, robust, strong tree intentionally planted. And I, and I think about that also. Um, I think about a small olive tree I was given at Christmas a year ago. And if you've come over, you might have seen, you might have been like, that's a tree? Patient. <laughs> it is. You were little too once. And right now, I have it in a big pot. It's a really big pot. It's kind of heavy, but I have to bring it inside because uh, the winter cold's a little much for it while it's this little tree in a little pot. And when I bring it in, I have to make sure it has enough water and light because it gets that outside, but I have to govern that a little bit more carefully. But soon, I'm going to plant that tree in a place where I'm confident of its enduring nourishment, and its roots will drive further into, ground, into the ground than I could ever dig myself, and it will secure life-giving nourishment of such a nature that I won't be moving it around anymore. Nobody will be moving that thing. No one will move it. No, not fear for its tender welfare in the harsh cold. It will bear through that just fine. And it will grow strong and it will endure in its own right and in its own right be glorious as this beautiful big tree, this gnarly tree. And such is the nature of the blessed man whose roots are driven deep into the soul-satisfying words of God. And maybe hearing that will draw another image to mind for you of something that I and others that care more than just about a tree that adorn our yards, but something much more precious to us, the church. And maybe a little logo or image that we've drafted uh, expresses the identity of these ideals for our church, that of a tree whose roots are driven what? Deep into the word of God, knowing that in the abstaining from sin and the delighting in the scriptures, we will see the producing of an unwavering, strong, fruitful, and enduring body for the glory of Christ. And this is the way of the blessed man. And it's the path that we pray we'll find our shared company on in this natural life. We are expressing something because it's what we want for ourselves and us as a unit. Because by contrast, by extraordinary contrast is the path of the wicked which is expressed not even so much as that, again, that puny or withering tree. It's not even that. It's not even you're out weeding and there's that little sapling and you're trying to pull it up and you're like, good gracious, why is it so hard? It's a little tiny tree that holds on rather tenaciously. It's not even that. But it's the dry and scaly protective, uh, protective casing of seeds or grain that just knocked off and flutters away with the gentlest of breezes. Again, it's like, oh, what's that? Well, that's chaff. And what's the scripture say? Like chaff, which the wind drives away. It's already hard enough to pick up that sapling in that pot. Wind ain't touching that thing. And here you have the chaff just whew, gone. And the psalm continues with the unpacking of this contrast, making it plain that just as there is a, a disassociation of the righteous from the wicked, so there's a disassociation of the wicked from the righteous. Therefore, the righteous... Do not walk, stand, or sit in the company of the wicked, and so the wicked have no secure standing before the righteous and just judge. They are without hope or help at the day of his reckoning. And whereas the righteous find no satisfaction or place to settle among the wicked, so the wicked find no satisfaction or place to settle among the righteous. Matters that bring us to the final section, Yahweh's evaluation of the contrasting ways. Verse 6. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This expresses not only the evaluation of the two paths, but give clarity to their nature too. The path of the blessed man is one that is known by Yahweh. It's a path forged by an affection and immersion in the word of God. It is known, intimately known by Yahweh. The path of the wicked, while perhaps a scenic route, is inevitably one that will end in a full and final destruction. 
There's no regard for God's word, and therefore there is no variable outcome. It is a single path to destruction. And it may be more obvious for some and less for others, but when you disassociate, remember the A, B, C, D, E, and we missed our C? You take that out, and now it's destruction. There's no, there's no alternate route here. There's no, well, maybe it'll end. There's no maybes. It's, this is the path to destruction. Now, when we began our time in Psalm 1 this morning, I stated how the, the placing of this message was intentional. Um, again, sometimes I kind of plan how Second Peter will develop, and it changes. Sometimes it hits really nicely, and it dovetails with something from the life of Christ or another special emphasis or season of the year. That's sometimes just the way it goes. I'm really excited when that happens. But I had a request of the elders to preach Psalm 1 several weeks ago on the, the first of the year because I wanted to establish a tone and foundation for another year that the Lord has graced us with. I do think there's something to evaluation of years as they pass, a year that I hope would be spent in no sm- small measure in the cultivation of greater faithfulness and being strengthened as worshipers. That's our objectives. We want to be more faithful and better worshipers. But to do that, we must find our greatest satisfaction and delight where? Yeah, in God's word. And it needs to consume our days and our nights. It's not a, how blessed is the man who carries his Bible, or how blessed is the man who listens to a, a very small proportionate amount of his week to instruction, or how blessed is the man who gave devotional moment token thanks to God. It's how blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night, who's consumed by the scriptures. You remember, not the front line on the eyes or the bristlets on the wrist. It's on our mouth. It's in our lips. It consumes our day and our nights. I've also referenced that it was the most precious association with the, some of the last messages that we've had. So um, we just finished Psalm 150, a psalm of doxological praise to God, an eruption of enthusiastic worship. And you get there with these foundations. We don't need to say, yes, we, we have ambitions and desires and we want to pray and pursue to be better worshipers, that we want to end with doxological thanks and worship of God. You don't get there without Psalm 1 first. Remember, they were placed intentionally where they were. The Psalter doesn't start with Psalm 150. It ends there. It starts with Psalm 1. So that's a foundation we lay. We also worked through John 3 this last week and examined the nature and requirement of being born again a necessary experience to even begin the, this long journey on the path of the blessed man. To end the journey in doxological praise, one must first submit to the work of the Spirit of God, hearing and believing the gospel. So you don't need to say, well, yes, I want to enjoy and be blessed by God and be saturated by the word of God. Well, there's a lot of people that are very scholarly and very shrewd and wise, but there's a lot of people that like Nicodemus, who was a master student of the scriptures and a teacher of Israel that Jesus would look at and say, you don't... You're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things because the lack of the spirit of God, lack of being born again. And so we can say all we want. Yes, we want to be a Psalm 1 man, a Psalm 1 woman, but until you heed the testimony of John 3 and are born again, then you just have a, a really neat, beautiful picture and ideal things. And so we submit to the spirit of God. We submit in faith and repentance. Then we become a people of the book and then we finish with doxological praise. And as we conclude now, I want to give a a cautionary word. It's a general cautionary word because I don't think it's necessarily one for you, but I think it's helpful to have a little bit of a goading as we finish. So we've already uh, cited from Charles Spurgeon. He loved the Psalms. I think he did his best work in the Psalms. Um, But he states regarding Psalm 1, how few among us can lay claim to the benediction of the text. Perhaps some of you can claim a sort of negative purity because you do not walk in the way of the ungodly. But let me ask you, is your delight in the law of God? Do you study God's word? Do you make it the man of your right hand, your best companion and hourly guide? If not, this blessing belongeth not to you. Now, I hope you see these words as a firm goading from a friend. Um, a firm goading from a friend so that you might stand not before any man and say, yeah, I'm a Solomon man, a Solomon woman, but you can stand before the Lord able to affirm that, no, this word has not been in vain, but the blessing does belong to me because by the grace of God, I am among the few whose appetite has been awakened and cannot be satisfied, but in the delighting of the word of God. So this is our shared ambition 
This is our shared ambition and pursuit, not only for 2022, but for the whole of our lives, that we indeed would be a people as we've, it doesn't just make for a cute tagline, it's to shape our identity, rooted in the scriptures, growing in grace. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that because of the work that you've done in our hearts, that we can declare, oh, I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Lord, we want to be so satisfied in you. And we know that a pursuit of that satisfaction in you will cultivate life patterns, that it'll drive us, direct us to the word of God, that we will uh, walk in its path, that we will we'll heed its thoughts and words and we'll walk in its path. It will inform our conduct and inform our doxological praise and worship. That's what we want. We want to be like that tree firmly planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and produces uh, and leaves that don't wither. These are things that we desire, Lord. But we desire them with a view to the fact that they are your good gifts, that they inform us about your character, your ways, what you desire, uh, how to understand this world. And in return, the fruits, not simply of blessing in our lives, but of praise and thanksgiving to you and lives that are mimicking and reflecting glorious truths. To be a witness-bearing people, to be a people that can declare your excellencies because we know and understand them, we cherish them. To be a people that we don't have cute or crafty arguments and we're not giving the strength of our time and study to, to things of helpful things, but of lesser consequence. Lord, we want to be a people strong in the scriptures. I think about Apollos, and it was so easy to correct his uh, fuller understanding of of this, of Revelation as it was, it was made plain in that transitional time between John and Jesus and the apostles. It was easy because he was a man mighty in the scriptures. And so it just took very little to instruct him and to teach him. And that's what we want to be, Lord. We want to be a people that are mighty in the scriptures that are enjoying and delighting in you and growing and being transformed. So, Lord, we ask, be our help. Forgive us when we've found satisfaction in lesser things and even just being distracted by lesser things. So, Lord, give us the grace to do this well and to, to call upon others as well, that they might also find satisfaction in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.